week of January 14th, 2024, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 645, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at the after party for the Emmys, I'm Michael Giltz. What a night. What an amazing night. I can't believe Succession won Best Drama, The Bear Comedy, Beef won Best Anthology. I have never seen an award show as exciting and amazing and complicated um, as this one, probably because... Yes. It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet because we're recording on a Monday. And of course, the awards are on a Monday. Uh, they didn't want to... The Emmy Awards are in January, of course, which... They never are. Unusually. Unusually. Yeah. And they said, oh, we, we better we better make way for those football games. Don't wanna don't wanna interfere with those on a Sunday. So they said, well, you know what? We'll do it on a Monday. And then of course all the football games got canceled and moved to Monday. So the best laid plans for the <laughs> Emmys totally got screwed. But what I should have said is rather than say, uh, so of course they haven't happened yet, they're happening tonight. We debated whether we should we should delay our recording until after the Emmys. And then we said, why? We all know who's going to win. It's like, by the way, and these shows are two years old at this point. So while important, you know, it's, they don't, people don't need to hear us talk about shows from two years ago that, that, that won awards. That's true. But speaking of award shows, the Golden Globes, we finally have info on them. And they did grow this year over last year. 9.4 million people watched the Golden Globes, according to the Overnights. Uh, that would not make it one of the top 100 primetime shows of 2023. You'd need 9.5 million to make it to number 100. Uh, but that's okay. But it's up over 2022, but it's nowhere near what it was back in the old days of 2019. It was more than double the size. It was 19 million people watched the Golden Globes in 2019. So 9 million a modest improvement over last year, but you've really lowered the bar there. And oh my God, breaking news. In my endless quest to stop all media outlets from sending out ridiculous breaking news alerts like third actor cast in a movie, Rolling Stone sent out a breaking news alert, Henry Kissinger's cause of death revealed. He was that 100. was this week. He was a hundred, for God's sake. And it's weeks after he died. Nobody was waiting with bated breath to find out what Henry Kissinger died of. Old age. However, we know one thing. He did not die of a guilty conscience the way he probably should have. Oh. But, do you, but do you have a guilty conscience? I do, because I haven't been to In-N-Out Burger in quite some time. And I have to say that I now know that uh, you can... You can actually go viral by having your picture taken at an In-N-Out Burger. All you need is to first win a Golden Globe and go there in a tuxedo after the Golden Globe Award ceremony. Yeah, if you had won an award, you get to go to In-N-Out. But I think you should have a guilty conscience because there will be no show next week. Oh, yes, because I will be at Sundance. That happens to be... And they don't have Wi-Fi at Sundance. I will probably be in screenings, probably. Oh, Most well, likely. I guess you have your priorities straight. Well, yes, because I have to go to collect the information that I then bring back like a squirrel to, to our listeners and <laughs> explain to them uh, everything that happened. I will act well, out every single movie I've seen, all the roles. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. We'll have to go to video for that. That's what's going to happen two weeks from now. Tell us what we're going to talk about this week. Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, it is January, Michael, and apparently that means it's time 
to fire people. Yes, that's right. A wave of firings are taking place across the entertainment business. Is the timing due to upcoming earnings calls or did CEOs find it hard to dump people right before the holidays? I mean, uh, well, I'm just kidding. Come on, come on, CEO. CEOs aren't really paid to have hearts. Plus, IMAX had a stellar year and by our measure, it might have been the best ever. Stay tuned for what that measurement is. Also, we are deep in the weeds of award season. We we're recording as, as uh, we just mentioned before the Emmy Awards. Of course, we do have the latest on the awards that matter. The guilds, the producers, directors, actors, and cinematographers have all weighed in. So now the Oscar race is in focus. We'll tell you who to place your money on. On Inside Baseball, we'll talk about Amazon Prime switch to advertising, uh, which, by the way, it's now time for us to uh, pause for uh, our sponsors. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's the biggest event. <laughs> Powder milk world. biscuits. Powder milk biscuits. They're a delicious, wonderful biscuit. Uh, you make them with butter in your home and look for the box with a, a biscuit on the side. That's the powder milk biscuit. I went to see Garrison Keeler at the Ryman Auditorium last week. That's where I was on Thursday night. So uh, Prairie Home Companion is on my mind. We can have oh. fake advertisers if we can't have real ones. Is he, is he actually still doing Prairie Home Companion or is it just like I'm Garrison Keeler and this is my, my shtick? Well, it was a f- it's the 50th anniversary of the show, which launched in 1974. He's been touring the country and doing sort of a, a show similar to it with some, st- and he's got his regular special effects people and the singers. It's much heavier on singing than it would be in the old days. There's much less scripted material and special guests. And of course, he's had uh, some issues in his life and career, which made me wrestle with whether I should go see him, but I felt like he had paid a price for the things that he... Uh, admitted to doing along with other things he denied doing and he paid a price and he was an old man and couldn't harm anybody anymore and i decided nah, i'll go go see him so yeah it's kind of a prairie home companion-ish show they streamed this episode at the ryman but he's touring the country and he, he goes around the country all the time doing sort of extended stuff he doesn't always do a lake wobegan monologue but usually he does and uh it was a pleasant evening including the sing-along well, and he always has a like kind of a fictitious sponsor, Powder Milk Biscuits, and uh, that's kind of what you were yeah. referencing there, Garrison. And, and ketchup, ketchup was another sponsor of the show. Ketchup uh, in times of need, ketchup. <laughs> it would be very funny if Amazon Prime's first commercial was for Powder Milk Biscuits, but uh, it would right be. Ne- yeah, right now in the streaming world, it is definitely the biggest event going on, and we will have it's going to have some a massive impact, and we'll explain why. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to you, Michael, entertainment journalist extraordinaire, to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right, and we're looking at box office around the world for the week ending January 14th. We pull information from ComScore and every outlet we can, but boy, it's been tough the last few weeks. The typical website I go to for China box office is usually updated late Sunday, but it's been down for the last two weeks. Sperlin's going to try and figure out why. The box office where I get Bollywood information, not all Indian films, but Hindi films, part of the Bollywood part of the Indian film industry, that website has been in disarray. It seems to be coming back to life a little bit, but I've really been short on information for films in China and India. Wikipedia does not seem to be updating as quickly because they don't have access to that information wherever they were finding it from. So I'm missing a few movies from China, like Shining for One Thing, a movie based on a TV series, and Endless Journey, both of which should have still been making money. And I'm very confused about the total box office for Miyazaki's film, 
the boy and the heron. But for the information that we do have, the number one movie around the world is a tie. It's Wonka and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. However, Wonka is outpacing Aquaman in every possible way. They both made $39 million this week. Wonka passed the half a billion dollar mark, $505 million. It's a big, big success story for the property and for Timothy Chalamet. It's a huge hit in the UK. And Aquaman is at $375 million and counting. The biggest new movie of the week is Mean Girls. That opened up to $38 million worldwide. I believe that number includes Monday here in North America. It's a holiday, the Martin Luther King holiday. So there is extra box office in some of that North American figures for some of the movies. Anyway, this new musical version of Mean Girls cost about $36 million to make. It opened with its budget already covered, $38 million, so that's a great start. The original movie made about $130 million worldwide. If this can get to that, it will be a big success story, and it's off to a very good start. So is the buzz on The Beekeeper. Jason Statham's ridiculous new action film made $37 million in its opening week. In China, we have a big workplace comedy. It's Johnny Keep Walking. At $32 million this week, $109 million worldwide. Universal has the biggest family-friendly movie on the charts. It's Migration, their animated flick. It made another $22 million. It's at $170 million worldwide. It looks like it will definitely triple its budget of $70 million. So that is another success story. So is the rom-com Anyone But You. This movie... Hollywood, some people said, oh, rom-coms are dead. Nobody cares. Ridiculous. Every genre can work if you do it well or satisfy audiences. This movie made another $20 million this week. It's at $78 million worldwide. It even grew in the UK over the previous week. So the word of mouth on this is great for the audience that cares. And it's already tripled its reported budget. So consider that a win. And you can imagine the green lights are popping up all over the place for another romantic comedy. Wish is the Disney film. Uh, They're not popping the champagne for that one. It made $14 million this week. It's at $223 million worldwide. China has hit with The Goldfinger, one of two Andy Lau films on the chart. That made another $13 million. And The Haunted Pool movie, Night Swim, that made another $12 million. It's at $30 million and counting. That's almost certainly going to comfortably cover its budget of $15 million. It should hit $45 million uh, pretty easily. Poor Things is an Oscar hopeful. That made another $9 million this week. That's at $24 million and counting. The far more expensive film Ferrari is hoping at best for maybe a supporting actress nod for Penelope Cruz and maybe some tech award nominations. That's the most it can hope for. It made $8 million this week and it's at $30 million, which is nowhere near its $100 million budget. However, there is news. Godzilla Minus One, the Japanese film which I recommend if you're at all interested in the Godzilla franchise. It made $8 million this week. It's at $96 million worldwide. It is now the top grossing Japanese language film in all history for North America. I think it's in the top five for all foreign language films, but it is at $50 million in North America, and it's the number one grossing film of all time in North America without adjusting for inflation. 
uh, at $50 million. So that's good to see. The Boys in the Boat is not an Oscar hopeful anymore. That made $6 million this week. It's just matching its budget. Scrolling down, Zac Efron's hopes for The Iron Claw. That movie's holding on well. Another $5 million this week. He's pounding the Hastings and hoping for an acting nomination. Uh, One Life, the UK biopic. That may be another Oscar nomination next year for Anthony Hopkins. That made $5 million and held very well in the UK. Uh, moving down, Follow Bear for Action, a Chinese film set in a zoo, made $5 million bucks. Alienoid 2, this is a sequel, or really it's part two, to a sci-fi comedy that opened up in Korea. Alienoid 1 was one of the biggest flops of the year, uh, but they made both movies at once for a total budget of $25 million, so they've got part two, so here it comes. It opened to $4 million. It is the number one film in South Korea, but that tells you how quiet it is right now at the North Korean box office. Other movies on the chart include The Color Purple and The Book of Clarence, which I have not seen yet, starring Lakeith Steinfeld, but uh, I really want to see that movie. And uh, moving down, American Fiction, another Oscar hopeful. We predict it will be nominated for Best Picture. That made $2 million this week. I saw it, and I was mixed. Have oh, you seen really? it? Oh, really? Really, I have not seen it. Uh, I uh, that was one that was a tiff, and I missed it. And yeah, I, I I'd like to see it though. Uh, you're you're mixed on it because everybody who sees it seems to love it. Along with the holdovers, that's another one that everybody's like, "Wow, oh, that's a really good movie." Yes, the holdovers I thought was a solid movie. It's dimmed a little bit in my mind since I saw it, but it's a good movie. Uh, it's not a great film, I don't think, but it's good. There's some things I'm I'm a little unhappy with. The thing that confuses me about the holdovers is the soundtrack. The movie okay. has some great classic cues, some great music that's included in movies to set the period of the early 70s, except for the, I think there's a track by Donovan, which is a little too nail on the head. No, 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 not Donovan. It's the uh, 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 Cat Stevens song, The Wind, Catch the Wind. That's just been used too many times. It pulled me out of the movie. I thought, oh, that's a lazy choice. But I wanted to hear the soundtrack. I went to my streaming service, and the only cues that are available are the film score cues. You can see the whole soundtrack, but most of them are grayed out, so you can't play the pop songs that they have used on the soundtrack. You can only play the film score. And I thought, well, that's weird. Maybe it's something to do with Amazon streaming. So I went to Apple, because I have that subscription as well. No, they're grayed out there as well. As far as I know, there's no streaming service where you can play the holdover soundtrack. Do you know why? It's blacked out. If you do, let us know. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter.com, where our handle is at Sperling. And we're on Facebook, where you can like our page, Facebook.com slash ShowbizSandbox. A few quick points to be made. One is that Disney decided to re-release some Pixar films that they did not show during the pandemic. They didn't hold them. Theatrically. They didn't show they them did. theatrically. That's right. They decided to just send them straight to streaming, and they've regretted that ever since. Movies like Soul and Luca, and they thought, all right, we're going to give them a theatrical release, one a month for the first three months of the year. And I thought, nobody is going to care about this. What do you think you're doing? It's just going to make them look bad. And so Soul has opened up to $400,000 on thirteen. Nobody knew screens. it was happening. Yeah. Everything about this is embarrassing. 
I mean, I found out about it just by chance, just kind of stumbled upon a Showtime, and I was and like, it's it's what? your business. It's your business yeah. to know exhibition and what's going on. I mean, we knew it was happening, but dear Lord, yeah, everything about this seemed like a bad idea, and that's how it has panned out. I mentioned before that box office is hard to come by. For example, Perfect Days by Vim Vendors, that's been playing around the world, but it's rarely, it's never made enough money to be in the top 10, so it hasn't appeared on the comm score charts. However, so far it's made $8.5 million. That's the most money one of his movies has made in about 15 years. So it's a good success story for Vim Vendors, and that movie opens up in the U.S. February 7th. I'm looking forward to it. I know you, you thought the movie was very good. I think you saw it at Cannes. I did, and, and and it is good. It definitely stays with you. Uh, it, it, you know, if only because, uh, well, uh, there's a, well, I'm, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but. It's, uh, a, it's a lovely movie. It's a lovely It's film. a lovely movie. Yes. Yes. The Boy and the Heron is a movie I've been tracking closely. I'm hoping it will get an Oscar nomination for Best Picture. I believed the movie was making $165 million worldwide. But now, in the last two weeks, suddenly everybody says, no, 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 more like $151 million. I'm like, well, what happened? <laughs> How did that happen? How did we lose $14 million? So uh, it's not easy to track the box office, and that brings us to Taylor Swift. Last week, Sperling pointed out to me quite accurately that, no, no, Taylor Swift's movie is now the top-grossing concert film of all time, passing Michael Jackson's This Is It. I'm like, but it made this much. He's like, no, no, they say it made that much money. So I went here, I went there, I went everywhere. Wikipedia, which is usually good, does insist that Michael Jackson's This Is It grossed $268 million worldwide. But when I look at the links that it provides as backup for that fact, none of them actually say it grossed $268 million worldwide. So that's not right. And I looked at other stuff, and I finally came upon the Guinness Book of World Records. They named Michael Jackson's This Is It, the top-grossing documentary film of all time, but they only confirmed that it grossed $252 million. So I, number two, by the way, is Grand Canyon, The Hidden Secrets, one of those, I think, IMAX films that plays in you know uh, museums and stuff, but makes money. And number three was Fahrenheit 9-11 at $221 million. So now we know Taylor Swift's uh, the Eras Tour is just made more money in China. It made about $1.5 million this week. And as far as we know, it's made $263 million worldwide, including $11 million in China. So it is comfortably the top grossing documentary film of all time, no matter how you slice and dice it without adjusting for inflation. But maybe we should wait for the Guinness Book of World Records to let us know where it ends up because they are a good authority and I'll trust them when they say this is it stopped at 252. Well, they still don't have us as 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 longest running entertainment podcast, so I, I don't know about that. It's just a we've got that record nailed down, but we do know Taylor made a lot of her money on IMAX screens, and there is some IMAX information for the year. Yes, uh, they had get this their second biggest year ever, which they touted one point six billion dollars, one point oh six billion, because one point six would be. Yeah, so it's $1.06 billion worldwide, second best of all time. 2019 set the record with $1.1 billion, so just $40 million off. But you want to point something out. That's right. Look at the percentage of the total box office. Remember, in 2019, the total worldwide box office was $42.5 billion. 
2023, it was a mere $33.9 billion. Why? They released fewer movies. But IMAX had almost the exact same amount of the of $1 billion, right? It was just $40 million off from one year to the other, but it's $1 billion of a much smaller pie. So when you look at 2019, IMAX accounted for 2.6 billion, 2.6 percentage of the entire box office. This year, it was 3% of the entire worldwide box office. That's like a 20% increase. So when people went to the movies, they splurged. They spent money on IMAX. But that raised my next question, Sperling. How much does the premium large format uh, genre or category account for the total box office worldwide? We know what IMAX accounts for, but every theater chain now seems to have their premium large format. Even if it's not IMAX, they've got some fancy name for when they upcharge you for the best screen in the house. How much of the total box office is spent on premium formats? Well, I don't know. However, usually you'll hear something between 39, 38, and 45%. Uh, you know, that much. Yeah, well, but my question is, is how are they accounting for that? Like, what, what is considered a part of that PLF? Is it also D-Box and 4D-Plex and mx 4 I'm sure it is. I'm, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it includes that, but there aren't that many of those. How the heck can they I get to 40% so. and up? If IMAX is only 3%, how the heck can they get up to... But I guess every theater, their biggest screen is considered their premium format screen. And they would say, that's a PLF. And they would charge most for that. And it's the biggest theater in the house. And when Oppenheimer opens up, or let's say Barbie, that's going to be in that biggest theater in the house, even if it's not IMAX. And all the money being made there accounts for that, right? Yes, correct. Uh, Except for some sessions, but yes. Right. Right, so every, every theater's got their biggest screen, and that screen is probably tagged PLF, and that's how they're coming up. Probably not even just one screen, right? They probably have two screens they count as PLF, especially in a multiplex. Right, and, and essentially what the, that is uh, saying is it's, it's usually big, giant screens, you know, floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's generally what they're referring to as, as PLF. Yeah. But wow, to, if IMAX is only 3%, that's really amazing that it gets up to 40 or 45% of the total yeah, box Yeah, well, I, I'd be interested to, to put that to them. I don't know why they wouldn't want to point that out other than the fact that, well, okay, there are fewer films being released and maybe fewer people are going because there are fewer films being released. Uh, and maybe they didn't want to point that out. I don't know. You mean, you mean the sense that IMAX has a bigger slice of the pie than ever, but we're talking about how much does the total PLF account for, and there should be a solid figure. It shouldn't be a rough estimate. We should be able to say, oh, it's 42% of it was spent on premium format screens. Let's remember, though, how, what percentage of moviegoers are subscribers? I have a monthly AMC pass. I saw Oppenheimer and IMAX, but I didn't pay extra for it. I paid my $25 a month fee or whatever it is. And I saw Oppenheimer and Barbie, uh, probably on big screens and everything else. So I don't pay extra for that. I saw Stop Making Sense in IMAX, but I'm not paying extra for it. But I bet my, however they calculate my contribution to that movie's gross, that was, of course, accounted for in the IMAX total. So it would be good to know also how many people subscribe. How many of the total box office comes from monthly subscriptions rather than individual ticket sales? 
Well, and that's something that, you know, someone like AMC or, or Regal or whoever happens to have a monthly subscription program, they would consider that proprietary. Why? Because when they're about to program a film or they're doing their programming on, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, they hold those cards close to the vest. They know like, well, okay, this, this film, uh, you know, it had a lot of subscribers show up, which means it's going to drop pretty big in the second week. We don't want to let our, we don't want to let our competitors know that let them keep that film and we'll put in a film that's going to do much better uh and they, so they, please they all know what's happening but they know what's happening with each other and they know if it's oh, happening not, to them it's happening amc knows what's happening with cinemark and cinemark or whatever the two big competitors are they know what's happening with each other don't they because that's they can only 50 percent on of the market the other 50 percent, they don't want to be telegraphing to the other 50 percent. hey you know what actually that film is going to drop like a rock next week you should probably get rid of it to uh, maybe make way an extra screen for the next big blockbuster. Don't they have to tell the studios? It's all part of the, the studios, formula yes. of the royalty. And, right. So studio, I, I yes. can't see how that information can be secret if everybody knows it except for, you know, the mom and pop theater in Oklahoma. Well, it's not the mom I think and you should break the lid off this. I think you should break the lid off of it and find out the numbers. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, I, don't, I just can't imagine that they just tell me. Uh, you know, I'll ask, but uh, something tells me that... Uh, Wouldn't they want to boast about having lots of subscribers? Because that would say, look, we've got this base of people ready to go to the movies. You need to cater to us and to our audience. I don't know. Maybe they're, maybe they're just uh, don't have the numbers because they're firing everybody. Yeah, well, there was a big story in the LA Times, actually, over the weekend about how many, um, how many jobs are being uh, axed and how many employees are being axed from all the entertainment companies uh, who have finally figured out, hey, linear is declining and it's not coming back. We should probably, you know, <laughs> get, get rid of a few people. Uh, and you, you kind of joked around at the beginning of the, of the, uh, the show here that, uh, you know, maybe they did this after Christmas because they didn't want to do it during the holidays. Believe it or not, that actually, there is something to that. It used to be that the, the biggest quarter for layoffs was the fourth quarter. But then social media came along and everybody can kind of go on social media and say, my company dropped you me. Horrible. In. Right. And so you now horrible the, people, the biggest quarter uh, is get this. It's the second quarter of the year. Which takes place when? Because the financial quarters are not the same as, I mean. Oh, no, sorry. It's of the calendar year, second quarter of the calendar year. So April, so it's, May, it's June. Uh, April, May, June. All right. Well, that bodes poorly for April, May, June because we got a lot of layoffs right now, don't we? Yes, we do. We have, uh, well, I mean, where do you want to start? Uh, I mean, you could talk about Universal Music laying off hundreds. You could talk about Amazon basically laying off all of its uh it's like a huge chunk of its studios. I don't know whether that's an MGM, Amazon Studios dual thing. You know, Twitch is firing 500 people, the, the uh, gaming streaming service. Uh, and, and that's about a third of the entire staff of Switch, Twitch. No, Twitch. 500 Twitch. people. Twitch, right. 500 people. So they had a staff of about 1,500 people, and they have fired a third of their entire staff. Why were they so overstaffed in the first place? Amazon, like you say, is laying off people at Amazon Prime, just as they're switching to advertising. And Amazon MGM Studios, the people at Orion MGM Studios, I believe, are behind American Fiction, which is about to get a Best Picture nomination. But there's no celebrating there as they fire off hundreds of people. Uh, and in very related news, as they fire all these people, the pay of Apple CEO Tim Cook fell. It fell, however to a mere $63 million. 
And a sentence where you say a CEO's pay fell to $63 million is a sentence you should never be able to write. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? I mean? They should never be yeah. making that much more than $63 million for the love of God. Just goes to show you how much profit those guys are raking in uh, at all those tech companies. As they fire people, as they fire people. When are we going to have Bernie Sanders on the show? I don't know. I don't think Bernie knows a lot about the award season, but I do know the guilds are speaking. We have the producers, the directors, the actors, and the cinematographers weighing in. We also have the Casting Society of America weighing in, but I'm not going to talk about them because they had like 47 categories and they didn't bother to to, you know, put their money where their mouth is and name the five or 10 best films of the year overall. They have big budget comedy, independent medium-sized comedy, micro budget comedy, big budget drive. It's like, oh, for God's sakes, that's fine. But tell us your big five. If you want to influence people, you have to lay your money down and say in every category, all put together, these are our top five films, period. Not drama, comedy, big budget, medium. It's like, but they didn't do that. So we're going to ignore them. The really big categories are the producers, the directors, and the actors. They are hugely influential. And when you look at them, only three films were nominated by the PGA, the DGA, and SAG for their equivalent of Best Picture. Those three films are Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Oppenheimer. And you can forget all the noise. Those three are the big competitors for Best Picture. If you consider a DGA nod for a first-timer, and of course you can get a nomination as a first-timer and get a top DGA nomination as well. That didn't happen here. But American Fiction then is also on all four lists. So those four films, American Fiction, Barbie, Killers of the Flower Moon, and Oppenheimer were all recognized by the Producers Guild, the Directors Guild, and SAG. And if you look at acting nominations to try and parse them out even further, I think it's pretty clear that Barbie and Oppenheimer are the strongest, with arguably Oppenheimer a little stronger because Barbie did not get a nod for America Ferrera. I'm a little surprised she didn't get one, actually, but they're both very strong. So Wait, she didn't, she didn't get one for SAG? She didn't get one for SAG? That she, she did not, I, I, unless oh, I wow. made a mistake. Okay. Well, I, hold I, on a second. I, best, best Supporting Actress is, no. Best Supporting Actress is Emily Blunt for Oppenheimer. Danielle Brooks for The Color Purple. That movie's only SAG acting nomination. Penelope Cruz for Ferrari. Jodie Foster for Nyad. And Divine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. So yeah, America Ferrer did not get a nomination there. That's the only other thing you would think they might have gotten that they didn't. It's still a very strong season for Barbie. Uh, it, you know, you can't help thinking Oppenheimer is rolling its way, but I would not rule out Barbie in any way, shape, or form for picture or director. Uh, you know, so that could happen again. But when you're looking at all of them, I feel like if you add it all up, we've got some favorites, don't we? Who are the six locks for Best Picture? We're going to say these six movies are definitely going to get a Best Picture nomination. I would say you've got um, Oppenheimer and Barbie. Mm -hmm. You've probably got Past Lives. Maybe. Nope. No? Oh, are you, oh, you want me to? Okay. Well, eh, maybe not. Eh, maybe not. Uh, Maestro? Maybe? Maybe? The Color Purple? No? Okay, you're talking about a lot of movies that are hopeful, but if you look oh, at who yeah. was well, actually... Killers of the Flower If you look at who's actually got... Well, if you look at who got nominations from the producers, the directors, and the actors, uh, you're looking at American Fiction, Barbie, The Holdovers, 
Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. Those are the six really strong films yeah. that, for various reasons, look like they're almost certainly going to get, not, even if they didn't get this, they got that from this group or the other group. Then there's another eight films competing for the final four slots. And that's where you'll find movies like Past Lives, Maestro, The Color Purple, and so on. I feel like, I don't know what you think, there's two foreign language films in the mix, Anatomy of a Fall and The Zone of Interest. I think, I Anatomy, think of Zone of Interest, Anatomy of a Fall definitely uh, gets uh, nominated. Uh, oh, okay, because I think The Zone of Interest definitely gets nominated. I would say that I too. can't imagine, that, that's going to win Best International Film, uh, but I think... There is a lot of intense uh, appreciation for that movie, so I think that's going to win. So you're gonna you're gonna make two foreign language films make our final ten. I don't know if the last time that happened. So I mean, the next yeah. question is, mm-hmm, that's yeah. Again, it seems oh, it has to happen, but it rarely does. And they almost never nominate an animated film, but we have two very strong contenders there. We can't help thinking every year, surely they'll nominate this, surely they'll nominate that, and then they don't because they almost never do. But Miyazaki's. Swan Song, The Boy and the Heron, marvelous film, and then Spider-Man, Across the Spider-Verse. The first film in that animated series won the best Oscar for animated film, but it was not nominated for best picture. The sequel has almost doubled the box office. It's a huge box office hit. The critical acclaim is as strong, if not stronger, and I can't help thinking that that movie could very well get a Best Picture nomination, a very rare thing for an animated film. Do you think either one of them has a chance? I think more The Boy and the Heron, because I think you look at the Spider-Man film and, and it's half a movie. I mean, they basically, not to spoil it for anybody, but it's So is Empire mo- Strikes Back! Yeah, well... Yeah, it, has a cliff, it has a cliffhanger ending. It has a cliffhanger ending. That's not a spoiler. Yes. And so and you think that's going to hold it back. Okay. Yes. Uh, whereas the uh, boy in the heron, it's like it's now or never, baby. He's not coming back to make another movie. So well, I mean, he—that's not maybe. You know, he's not dead. He's not dead. So that's nine films according to you. That's American fiction. I think Barbie, past lives the has a fair shot. I think past lives has well, a fair absolutely. Shot. But we have one slot left. Is it going to be the color purple? Is it going to be Maestro? Is it going to be past lives? Or is it going to be maybe the documentary American Symphony with John Batiste? So. Which one of those four is going to be the one? Maestro, which got Best Actor and Actress from SAG. Uh, it also got a uh, uh, Producers Guild nomination. Will it be Past Lives, which got a Best Directorial Debut nomination from the DGA and a Best Picture nomination from the PGA, uh, but did not get any acting nominations from the SAG? So, which of those movies do you think it'll be? There's only one slot left, according to you. Which one will it be? Maestro, Color Purple, Past Lives, or American Fiction? I mean, uh, 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 what's it called? American Symphony. I like, uh, um, I like Past Lives, but I would not be shocked mm-hmm. if Color Purple is what wins. You mean gets that final slot? Yeah. All right. Well, Sperling has spoken. Uh, I think that's, uh, I think that's, you know, those last four slots, you can just juggle those movies. We've named 14 films, so we get no credit for, you know, naming the final 10 out of those 14 films, because those are the ones in the mix. You know, I personally feel like uh, Spider-Man is going to get a nomination, but that's probably just wishful thinking on my part. I'd love to see both of those animated films get, get nominated for Best Picture. They both deserve it. And I wish the Casting Society of America 
would not have 47 awards, including Zeitgeist Blockbuster Award, the dumbest award of the year for everybody. Everybody's a moron now doing what the Academy did and realized was a big mistake saying, oh, you're a big, you had a big hit. There you go. (laughs) Just like Golden Globes. And now the CSA is doing as well. They're giving a Zeitgeist Award. I'm pretty sure Barbie's going to win that one. Oh, but it is, it is, uh, uh, it's time for big deal or big whoop. If you don't think that's a big deal. Oh, I see what you're doing. You're moving us along into big deal or big whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, Don Lemon, big whoop moving along. No, just (laughs) Don, Don Lemon is making like Tucker Carlson and putting a new show on the platform X. Lemon says, quote, you'll find it first on X, the biggest space for free speech in the world. (sighs) I know now more than ever (laughs) that we need a place for honest debate and discussion without the hall monitors, end quote. How much was he paid to say that? Lemon was dumped by CNN after hosting their morning show and then dissing women over 40 as, quote unquote, past their sell-by date. I'm pretty sure that those were his exact words. Uh, The show clearly won't be exclusive to X since Lemon says you'll find it first on that stage. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? And he also hosted a primetime show and he just, yeah, don't get me started. Well, I liked his primetime show on CNN. That was that was where he began and came break out. I kind of liked Don Lemon, but he became more of a in love with the idea of his own pontificating. And boy, if you're really trying to make me not like you, what he says about X, oh, we need free speech without a hall monitor. It's like, oh my God, Don, why are you trying to make me hate you? Uh, and I'm shocked they didn't go to MSNBC. I'm, I'm surprised somebody else, maybe they thought his brand was too damaged or with his mindset here, oi, this is just... Uh, a sad stage for Don Lemon. And I'm still waiting for uh, the two people from GMA3, you know, the couple that was dating, why they haven't been snagged by MSNBC or somebody else for uh, a morning slot. Uh, CNN should take them and have them do their morning slot. They're terrific. But anyway. Tom Cruise. Big deal. (laughs) I'm just kidding. He's making a home at Warner Brothers, to which, uh, you know, the... The uh, security guard said, listen, pal, you can't just like sleep here. Okay. You need to, uh, (laughs) it's a workplace. Uh, Though Cruz's two biggest franchises are with Paramount. That would be Mission Impossible and Top Gun, by the way. He hasn't had an official deal with Paramount since 2006. And his team makes clear Cruz will still work with all comers. He's got another Mission Impossible film for Paramount and a space film for Universal already on the front burner. Nonetheless, Cruz has signed a deal with Warner Brothers to produce original and franchise films for Cruz to star in. The trades were really clearly urged to give credit to David Zaslav for making this happen. I love talent, we imagine Zaslav saying, though, of course, Michael DeLuca and Pamela Abdi are the studio chiefs. Cruz got his break with Risky Business and made a string of films for Warner Brothers, though only that film and Interview with the Vampire were clear commercial hits. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, well, um, who's the winner here? Is it Tom Cruise? No, it's David Zasloff. Without a doubt. Is this like, a um, We <laughs> basically told the guy, hey, you're really popular. We'll make a few movies with you. Bring us some movies. Yeah, they had, a, they had a meeting and they discovered that he and Tom Cruise had a lot in common as he told Tom how wonderful he was to save Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, the, the fights with Paramount are interesting. 
he had to lawyer up when they wanted to do a 45-day window for Top Gun Maverick. Uh, they wanted to do a TV series spinoff from Mission Impossible while he's still making the movies. They wanted to do a Days of Thunder TV show. I don't know why he would even bother fighting with them about that. But let's not oversell that. I mean, he has two big movies with them. They're doing another Top Gun movie. They're going to do Top Gun 3. Did Warner Brothers give him money or is it just bragging rights? I mean, what did they even do here? It's not even clear other than, you know, he's got somewhere to hang his shingle. Yeah, it's, that's what I mean. It's, and if I were, um, if, if I were uh, David Zaslov, I'd be a little concerned here about eventually looking like the person who's always leaking things and trying to get their name in the press. Like, I don't know, a merger between Paramount and, you know, he has that meeting with, with uh, uh-huh. Backish over at Paramount and all of a sudden it's in the news. He signs, uh, <laughs> you know, well, he doesn't, but the studio signs Tom Cruise and all of a sudden he's once again in the news. It's like you're- Well, right, I mean, he shoved his name into it rather than just letting it go to his people. Like, right. Obviously, they were going to announce the deal if that wasn't leaked, but it was obviously like Zaslav, Zaslav, make sure he gets the credit. So that was tacky. And by the way, it's Amy Robach and JT Holmes, who the TJ Holmes, who are the two hosts of GMA3 that I was trying to think of. I still can't believe they haven't been snapped up by CNN for the morning slot or somebody, MSNBC. They seem like a great fit. The Harry Potter franchise is firing on all cylinders. That's our next story. The play you know, the Harry Potter play, it became the highest grossing play in Broadway history and is still going strong after almost six years. It's been in the West End for almost eight years. The films are, pl- the film, you know, all the string of like nine films, they played on a loop on Bravo and are a Christmas holiday tradition. Don't ask me why Christmas, but it is. The books are strong sellers being discovered by new generations every few years. A TV series set at Hogwarts, 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 uh, Hogwarts. that is, Hogwarts, yes. That is on the front burner at Warner Brothers. Maybe Tom Cruise could star in it. And now there's the video game. (laughs) Hogwarts Legacy debuted almost one year ago in February of 2023. It sold 22 million copies and was the biggest seller worldwide. It ranked number two at times in terms of total players online. Reviews were positive, and if there's a wizarding term equivalent for home run, well, that's what Hogwarts Legacy is indeed. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. Is it despite J.K. Rowling? I don't think so, necessarily. I don't think she's a problem anymore for most people. Her mystery novels remain bestsellers. The Fantastic Beasts franchise is stalled, but you know what? They got a couple movies out of it. It never had good reviews, and uh, they probably should be happy with that. And the theme park rides seem permanently established. So Harry Potter is going strong, whatever you think of J.K. Rowling's personal views. Um, So that's exciting to see. And guess what? The Hogwarts Legacy has a lot of room for improvement. And they seem to be working on that, so this, this franchise could just get stronger. A week or two ago, we shared a list of the top 100 programs in primetime, and it was dominated by sports. More than sports, half, sports, sports. Yes, in fact, more than half of all broadcasts were sports, 55 to be exact. Well, now we have a list of the top 100 broadcasts in the United States last year in any day part. It means, you know, morning, noon, and night. And we can't say sports dominated. Thanks to the inclusion of Sunday afternoon games, it was virtually all sports. Okay, so you look at this list and you're like, um, yeah, I'd need more than just the sports. Can you give me more than that? And they said, well, nope. 95 out of the 100 broadcasts were sports. The top 95 broadcasts out of 100 sports. That is unbelievable. Big deal or big whoop. 
Well, it's a big deal, but I only stumbled across this on a on a sports website that I'd never even heard of, and it's from Nielsen, so it's a legit thing. And I quickly realized, oh, these are all the daytime stuff, you know, the Sunday games and all that stuff. Wow, unbelievable! And we've been calling for years. Give us a list of the top shows every week, no matter when they air. You know, now that we have DVRs and on-demand, who cares if it's the Today Show or uh, the equivalent to Judge Judy or Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune or some afternoon talk show like Kelly Clarkson or a daytime soap or, you know, early evening access or prime time or late at night with, you know, Stephen Colbert. Just tell us what the most popular shows are for the week. And it radically changes what you see is important when you do that, as you can see by this list. Of course, this list does not include stuff that's on streaming like, you know, Stranger Things and stuff like that that might have, or Wednesday would be more appropriate and recent, that would have a big audience and would figure on there if they were mixing that in there. So it's not capturing everything, but it's still an important number. And I've never seen the reason for separating day from prime time and all that because they all make money and they're all getting eyeballs. And if Judge Judy deserves to be in top slot, you know, 41, 42, and 43, well, so be it. I want the information. I don't want you to filter it for me just to avoid the harsh reality of what's going on. And in this case, the harsh reality is that sports is where it's at. Oh, and by the way, yeah, that well, means, by the way, we, we just had new news. Amazon had the first streaming exclusive for a postseason game. They reached 23 million people, and it's the most streamed live event in U.S. history. And no that's surprise. Not that, that, that was Peacock. Oh, Peacock, Peacock. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm saying Amazon was on the chart with Thursday Night Football, and now next year Peacock will be too. I messed that up. You're right. And of course, Disney's in talks with the NFL. The league is going to possibly take a stake in ESPN, not all of Disney, but that means Disney would also manage assets like NFL media and stuff like Red Zone, which is the way obsessive gamblers keep track of a gazillion games at once. And linking them closer together would give Disney an inside track on access to NFL games, which obviously are more important than ever. Indeed. Uh, you know, the streaming thing with, with Peacock, that was maddening because you had to watch it on Peacock. You had to watch this football game on Peacock. And I thought, oh, the ratings for this are going to be horrible. There's no way. I mean, first of all, what, the, the service has 30 million people? So you're saying that most of them had, were watching this game? No, people like signed up and it was a big get for for you know NBC Comcast because or Comcast NBC because ultimately a lot of those people will probably cancel their subscriptions I don't know they're also going to realize there's a lot of soccer a lot of international football is on Peacock. That's why my brother's been subscribing for a while. He watches all these games on Peacock all the time. And they're going to say, oh, you know what? That's there too. Maybe it's worth it. I'll keep it for a few weeks. And suddenly they'll decide that it's worth it to keep it. Getting those people to sign on even once is a good win. And uh, more importantly, uh, what was I going to say? It was something exciting. I can't remember what it was. My mind's a blank. <laughs> I, I, I had another point but it's all it's all gone out of my head peacock streaming streaming peacock uh, oh i know i was gonna say people said the same thing when when football was exclusive to espn they said oh my god nobody's getting you ruining everything yes people however the money however a lot more mm -hmm. people had cable at that point than had peacock i mean essentially you're saying no no well yeah yeah i, I mean a hundred million people had cable then so we've had games exclusive to facebook with sporting events we've had sporting events exclusive to twitter or x you know this is just this is the future i think 
you're a, you're a league, you're a baseball league. You want people to have as much access to it as possible so casual fans can tune in, but that's not where the game is going. I just can't wait to pay $400 per month for all my subscriptions because that cable bundle <laughs> we'll, was really so expensive. We'll, we'll get there later. We'll get there later. Uh, music streaming is a pretty mature business. Spotify launched in 2006 and came to the U.S. in 2011. That's more than a decade ago. And yet somehow music streaming consumption grew by more than 12% in 2023 and more than 30% worldwide. And sure, Taylor Swift helped, but catalog music is a big part of that too. Now that figure worldwide includes audio and video, so people watching videos on YouTube and elsewhere count too. Audio only grew 22% worldwide. More facts for you. More than 100,000 new songs are uploaded daily to services like Amazon Music and Bandcamp. We expect you to listen to all of them. They will be a pop quiz later. <laughs> and more than 400,000 tracks were streamed at least 1 million times. An increasing number of those are Latin and, thanks to the growing Indian market, in Hindu and other Asian languages. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. Music listening grew 30% worldwide. Audio grew by 20% worldwide. 12% in North America, where you would think almost everybody has it. But you know what? I listened to so much music last year. It's probably all due to me. I've listened to a lot of Latin music, a ton of catalog while I worked through some hip hop and jazz and blues. And I'm surprised they don't mention a surge in popularity for Ella Fitzgerald because I listened to like 30 Ella Fitzgerald albums last year while I said, oh my God, there's so much Ella Fitzgerald I haven't listened to. That's my music listening habits. And boy, do I see that reflected here. Music streams worldwide passed 4 trillion. There were 4 trillion streams of music in 2023. Music's been around a long time. People have had streaming music for quite a while now, and it grew 22% for audio only worldwide. That's amazing. There's still a lot of room to grow. Well, you know what? The Oscars are probably one of those programs that was on that top 100 list, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, the Oscars have a new point person. And uh, we can't say the Academy Awards has a boss, really, exactly, because too many people get a say in the iconic movie awards show. I mean, we have a say. You and I, Michael, we we sit in the conference room and say, guys, Mm -hmm. you should make a three-hour show longer. And they listen. Every year they listen. But the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences now has someone in charge of all things Oscar all year long. Oh, my goodness. I, 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 during rehearsals, Tenny I- Tenny Melodonian. Oh, thank you. Tenny, Tenny Melodonian. I'm just guessing. Okay. Well, what you said. Uh, na- that person was named the chief Oscars officer. So, COO? While Mary Jane Partlow is exec- VP for awards, production, and special events. All year long, Melodonian and Portlau will be on top of the Oscars, thinking about the Oscars and working with ABC and the studios and publicity folk and the guilds and all the other people who make money off the Oscars. The only people who don't make money off the Oscars? You and me. Uh, Big deal, big whoop. Uh, That's not true because we talk about the Oscars and people listen to our show to hear what we say about the Oscars. So we are profiting from the Oscars. We are part of the Oscar publicity machine. You know what? It's a big deal. It's a full-time job. 
The worst thing that happens to the Oscars is starting from scratch every year. You want to have some institutional memory. Great that they've done this. They now need to make a deal so they have the same producers on a long-term contract. I'm not a big fan, but get Jimmy Kimmel on a long-term contract. Just make it a smooth running machine rather than a Rube Goldberg device shakily constructed in a few weeks every year. This is a really big, important first step to doing that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but that wraps up Big Dealer Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Here's how this will affect you. You'll be watching something on it, like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, something on Amazon Prime, and they will fade to black and they will fade up on a commercial, okay? Because a very good feature for by Ketchup. Alex- Ketchup. Ketchup is a wonderful, oh God, savory addition to any meal. Yes. Ketchup. Well, we're talking about a, a very good feature by Alex Weprin in The Hollywood Reporter. He says it, it all in the headline, Amazon is about to eat the TV universe, plus ketchup, plus powder milk biscuits. If it wasn't a holiday <laughs> weekend, we would have invited Alex to join us. The story is linked to in our show notes, and you'll you really should read it. Here are the highlights along with our thoughts about what is going on. All right. The first highlight is Amazon Prime is turning on ads and, of course, firing hundreds. Okay. Lots of streamers have ad-supported tiers. What's happened is they launched their service at a premium price, and then they offer a cheaper alternative with ads and use that to lure in new customers maybe on a budget. And there's a bonus they found out. The streamers are making more money from cheaper tiers with ads than they do with premium tiers that have no ads. Huh advertising, the way most broadcast and cable channels have thrived for decades, is really profitable. And now Amazon Prime is joining the fray. But there's one big difference. It is not offering a new, cheaper tier. It is automatically switching all Prime customers to ads. If they don't want ads, they have to spend an extra $3 a month. And Amazon expects most people to just deal with the ads. In one fell swoop, Amazon will have the biggest streaming audience on tap for advertisers. This is all happening on January 29th. That's when they start including ads on Prime. And Prime, of course, is already one of the biggest streamers in the world. They are coy about numbers. But basically, more than 200 million people subscribe to Prime around the world. And one estimate says 168 million people, like half the population in North America, Uh, subscribe to Prime alone. Just in North America, 160 million people. And every one of those people is going to start seeing ads on January 29th unless they opt out. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to go with this. You opt in, which is what Netflix did. They said, okay, you you, you have a premium subscription now. If you want to go cheaper, you can. Or, and you'll get ads. Or you can keep it with no ads and you're paying $19 a month. And How many subscribers does Netflix have on its uh, ad tier? Oh, I wish I had looked that up beforehand because it was a problem. The level was like twenty or thirty percent ahead, you know, before like of, of new subscribers. But I don't know how many they have on their tier. Well, I'll oh. tell you. In October, they had fifteen million subscribers on its ad tier. That's grown by almost fifty percent. They now have twenty-three million subscribers on their ad tier. That's amazing. 23 million compared to 160 million on Prime immediately on January 29th. 
So you, they have. Can I tell you something? You know, I must exponentially have, it, more. I I think that that it, this must have stuck in my brain somehow because I was going to say twenty three million, but then I was afraid. So when I was reading this article, which by the way you pointed out to me, you brought it up to me, so thank you for that. Uh, I thought mm-hmm. I don't. I want to say twenty three million, but maybe it's twenty three percent. So it just goes to t- show you uh, my reading comprehension uh, is so so fifty fifty. Well, there's a goal here, and the goal is big money, and they're all looking at YouTube, aren't they? Because YouTube is already making a lot of money on advertising. When you look at that music streaming, a fair chunk of that is a lot of it's people on YouTube looking at stuff, and I, every time I go to YouTube, I see an ad, even if I don't want to, or most of the time I see ads because people post content or, or you know, an official Tony Bennett website. If I want to look at a video, uh, I'm going to see a five-second ad before I watch my video. Where's YouTube at in terms of what they're making? Uh, YouTube uh, on track for $30 billion in ad revenue for 2023. I mean, that, and that's over. So it, does, it doesn't include subscribers to YouTube TV like you, Michael. You're, you're a subscriber. Right. And by the way, can you ever open YouTube.com without getting asked to join? I every I'm always, single uh, time. Oh, really? For YouTube TV? Unbelievable. <laughs> They're like, no, we want you to join, 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 join. What is going to be the impact on broadcast and cable? What is going to happen to linear TV? They make a lot of money on ad sales. What is going on now? They're already it's fall hurting, off a cliff. aren't they? Yeah, I mean, this is why Sherry, Sherry Lansing, I always say Sherry Lansing because she used to work at Paramount, but it's Sherry Redstone. That's why she's trying to sell. And everybody's like, hey, Sherry, <laughs> you know, you've got all those assets that today they're worth a dollar, but tomorrow, don't worry, they'll be worth 90 cents. So I'm definitely not going to pay a dollar 10 for them, which is what she wants. She's saying, hey, I have a billion dollars in, in national amusements, which controls Paramount Global. Why don't you buy it from me for $3 billion? Don't worry, it'll be worth $750 million before the, you know it. That's not ad sales. Ad sales are already falling. Ad sales are already falling for linear TV. And now there's going to be a new competitor with 160 million eyeballs. Now they're not looking to discount and and cut right around those people, but they are going to be offering ads, probably reach a big wide audience without spending as much money as you would have to in prime time. Otherwise, you know, why would you bother? But it's a big, huge new person looking to suck up ad dollars. And linear subscriptions, guess what's happening with cable and the other ways people subscribe to uh, television? 2024 will be the year most households do not subscribe to linear TV, meaning most households will not have a cable subscription. I'm not sure if that concludes over-the-top subscribers like myself. I was just going to ask not, that. It, it should include that. It, there's, it, it includes satellite people, subscribers like DirecTV. It should include that, but I'm not sure that it does. But even if it doesn't, and you can add those in, it's getting very close to that tipping point where most people, households will not have a TV subscription service like you know, Spectrum and Cable and YouTube TV and, and TiVo and whatever. So that is a huge turning point. Um, some people were asking, what about Amazon? They have this free ad-supported streamer already. It's called Freevee. And it's doing pretty good. It has Judy Justice and Jury Duty, which is up for Emmy nominations. That show will be happening tonight. And it's apparently very fun. And that's not going anywhere. But there's no question that ad dollars are going somewhere. They're going to be headed to Amazon. And it's kind of a zero-sum game. It's not like people are going to suddenly spend you know, an extra $10 billion on advertising. 
Some of that money is going to Amazon, and that means it's not going to you. So we can see where cable is, can't we? <laughs> it's everything old is new again, right? Suddenly we got ads on streamers, and they're trying to bundle them together. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, at this point, everybody's talking about, well, well, Warner Brothers by Paramount. Uh, the Paramount <laughs> Plus network is probably, or streamer, it's, it's an also-ran, you know, they're going to have to shut that down because it's costing them a fortune. Uh, and I, I, I don't know why that, it would cost a fortune. They're not spending that much on content and it's their library. Yeah. I don't know. Don't, don't look at me. I'm just, I'm just the messenger. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know that. I don't know that that's true that it's costing a fortune. I mean, they lost, no, they're it. losing money. It seems they, like you, when you look at their, they're all money. losing money. They're all losing money except for, except for Netflix. They're all losing money. Disney's yeah. losing money. Disney's losing Warner money. Whatever this discovery is losing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there, there are those who say, oh, well, you can see where Disney and, and, and Peacock look like they, they are headed toward break even, maybe. Uh, and Disney keeps promising, hey, we're going to break even in 2024. So, you know, I'm sure the shareholders will hold them to that. Um, but at some point, I think, you know, the big, the big uh, I guess, scuttlebutt, it's not scuttlebutt, but everybody believes that Warner Brothers and NBC Comcast or Comcast NBC will merge. I don't oh necessarily know that oh that's going to happen. Well, everything old is new again. We had cable. Everybody, you bundled together all these services, all these channels, all these streamers. A lot of them had ads and some didn't. You paid a big monthly fee and you watched it all, sometimes on demand with your VCR or your DVR or whatever right. it might be. And then slowly but surely it became so expensive, people looked to jump. Then we said, oh, we've got streamers. And now what's happening? We've got streamers. They're all adding in advertising and they're trying to bundle them together so we can pay a big fat price. So everything is old, is, is new. Cable is dead. Long live cable. Well, we said that was going to happen. It just death and taxes. We said it's, it's like death and taxes. More than likely, there's going to be bundling at some point. Uh, de- it's not assured like, say, death is. But uh, you know what? For some people, we'll be talking about their deaths this year or this, this uh, episode, including Pulitzer Prize winning TV critic Tom Shales. He was with the Washington Post. He died at the age of 79 of COVID. So it's still a thing, people. Uh, he wrote mainly for the Washington Post, I should say, not, not entirely. Um, mm-hmm. But he was really influential amongst uh, entertainment journalists and television critics specifically. He also wrote a number of books, including uh, an, one oral history about ESPN and Saturday Night Live. Uh, but he did that, those with uh, James Andrew Miller. That's right. So he had two oral histories, one about ESPN and one about SNL. They weren't combined yeah. into one book. And he no. was really influential because his reviews were syndicated all over the country. So he was probably the most significant TV critic for a number of years. Right. And he was with The Post for like 40 years. In the UK, pioneering DJ Annie Nightingale, what a great name for a DJ, is dead at 83. She was the first woman to host on BBC Radio 1, the flagship station of BBC Radio, and virtually everything she did in her career broke down barriers. She also co-hosted the Old Grey Whistle Test, one of the iconic music showcases in the UK. Think of it as the cooler alternative to the hits focus show, Top of the Pops. You've probably heard of that. And if you've oh, watched yeah. any old music videos or live performances on YouTube, you've probably stumbled across the Old Grey Whistle Test. Her career began in 1970 and continued on air right up until late last year. Good for her. And she was famous for embracing all sorts of music on her show, helping boost punk, 
acid house, grime, and the like into the popular consciousness. Now, I love this guy. Dave Thomas of SCTV dubbed Emmy-winning comedy writer Brian McConaughey the Clark Kent of comedy. If you see any photos of him, he's got a bow tie and, and glasses just like Clark Kent. He died at the age of 81. He is reportedly the only person to have written for the holy trinity of 70s comedy. The magazine National Lampoon, Saturday Night Live, which he received an Emmy for, and Canada's SCTV, which earned him a statue in 1982. He also wrote an episode of The Simpsons and apparently made friends with Woody Allen because he has cameos in like five or seven of his movies. He also launched the comedy magazine The American Bystander, which is still ongoing and sort of a cross between National Lampoon and The New Yorker. Speaking of SCTV, the son of singing legend Mel Torme, writer Tracy Torme, followed his dad into showbiz. He loved the comedy series SCTV. He sent in some material while he was still in college, and they hired him. That never happened to me. He also wrote for SNL, but we assume not National Lampoon. I couldn't figure that out. Uh, That's what he gets for going to USC and Loyola rather than Harvard. He was hugely influenced by 2001 A Space Odyssey and Planet of the Apes when he was a kid. So despite starting in humor, he made his big mark in sci-fi. He co-created Sliders. He was hand-selected by Gene Roddenberry to work on Star Trek The Next Generation. In fact, he wrote an episode for that series that won a Peabody, the only Peabody Award for any of the Star Trek shows. And he was really into sci-fi. I don't think I've ever seen this, but his obituary makes a big point of saying he's like an expert on baseball and had a lifelong fascination with UFOs. He calls him an expert on UFOs, like a real expert, not like into stupid stuff, but like speaking to army pilots and people like that. He was really, really into UFOs. And finally, uh, it should have won the Emmy for best sitcom, The Honeymooners. The whole cast is now gone. Joyce Randolph died at 99. She played Trixie, on the classic sitcom The Honeymooners, and was the last surviving member of the cast. So Jackie Gleason, Audrey Meadows, Art Carney, and now Joyce Randolph, all reunited in heaven. Sitcom To the moon, Alice! To the moon! Exactly. Um, But you know what? Uh, Hey, tune in next week, not next week, of course, two weeks from now, to to learn more about Sundance, the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, If you see me there, say hello. Uh, you know what? You don't. You won't want to miss that episode. So please do subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, and please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that give away podcasts for free. It helps us out when you when you rate and review us, especially if you give them, uh, you know, give us uh, you know, a couple stars, like five, five, five would be nice, right? Or four, depending on how many stars they give you, or one if that's the only thing you can give. But that information, they can, af- links- they can afford more than that. 10 stars. Well, Give I, us 10. I think, I think Spotify only allows you to like click star or not star. I, I don't know. I just found sure, out. Sure, but can- you just say, I even more. I, then you say in the notes, I'd give them 20 stars if only I could. True. I don't know if they allow you to comment on Spotify. I'll have to look into that. But that information, those ways to subscribe to us, as well as those ways to reach us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Or we're on Twitter, at showbizsandbox is our handle. Or we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. And I always forget, I should call it twitter.com because it's no longer called Twitter. It's X, of course. Um, But you know what? All of this information 
and links to all of the stories we discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. Their new song, Mother Nature, is out, and their new album is almost just a little over a month away. Their new album is Loss of Life. comes out February 23rd. They have their own website, whoismgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? I'm trying to find out what's at breakingnews.com. Somebody must own it, but it's just not loading. So, you know, I thought I was going to be like, breaking news, Henry Kissinger, still dead. But for some reason, breakingnews.com will not populate on my screen. So uh, just go to Michael Giltstock. Yeah, that's where you can find all of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until two weeks from now, play nice. (laughs) 